Renee DeResda is the Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory, where she studies abuse in information technologies, investigating the spread of narratives across social and media networks with an interest in user behavior, factional crowd dynamics, and the ways in which actors leverage these systems to exert influence. Renee led multiple investigations and presented public testimony on multi-year efforts and influence operations of Russian actors in the 2016 presidential election. She's gone on to advise Congress, the State Department, and other academic, civil society, and business organizations on terrorist activity and state-sponsored information warfare. Renee also speaks and writes regularly about technology policy as a contributor at Wired and The Atlantic. Her work has been featured or covered by The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg, Yale Review, Fast Company, Politico, TechCrunch, Wired, Slate, Forbes, BuzzFeed, The Economist. You get the idea. She also appeared in the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Before all of this, she ran research, marketing, and business development at a couple startups, and before still, she worked in venture capital and quant finance. Renee's the author of The Hardware Startup, Building Your Product, Business, and Brand, published by O'Reilly Media. She also has degrees in computer science and political science from the Honors College at Stony Brook University. In her free time, she's the co-founder of the parent advocacy organization Vaccinate California and raises three children. Today we talked about the internet's biggest problems, social networks as open protocols, and pseudonymity online. Hope you enjoy. So, you know, for starters, I think it'd be great to hear a little bit about you and the path you took to get to where you are today. You know, like what would you say were those early interests and larger milestones along the way that led you to diving so deep on discourse and the propagation of information across information technologies, I guess, because you've, you've worked across quite a variety of fields up to this point. Yeah, it was, it was entirely accidental. So in undergrad, I did computer science and political science, and I minored in Russian, and I took a million philosophy classes, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself, basically. <laughs> and I... I really liked the I really liked my graph theory and network theory classes. I went to Stony Brook. I had a pretty heavy math concentration. I took mostly applied math electives actually and some interface design electives. That was I, I kind of preferred that to the to the kind of more engineering focused work. That took me to Wall Street actually. I took a job at Jane Street and it was pretty early. It was 2005, so the firm was still small. I was, you know, kind of first 30 people. And it was entirely unexpected. I, they just kind of, I had a resume up. They called me for an interview. I was thinking I was going to go to law school. I was taking my GREs, my LSATs, you know, trying to figure out where I was going to go with these these two weird degrees that I had. And I went in for the interview and I just really loved the environment of the trading desk. And I had never even thought of this as a potential. I'd never taken a finance class. But I was struck by this interesting environment that they had that was very, you know, I played poker during my interview, you know, these sorts of things. And, and I thought, what an interesting culture, but more than that, what an interesting way of applying some of the kind of applied math classes that I'd really liked to this, you know, to just in, in some sort of professional capacity. I didn't know that it existed. So quant finance, you know, it was like the world opened up and I thought this is this is actually really cool. And I was I did it for about seven and a half years. And through the financial crisis, through the European debt crisis, one thing that I really loved about quantitative derivatives arbitrage was uh, was the desk that I was on. This question of how does information as it comes into the world trickle down through the entire apparatus of financial instruments, right? So I was a market maker in ETFs. I was a trader of cross-border um, derivatives arbitrage between Brazil and, and the US. 
And I was just really struck by this interesting phenomenon where, you know, something would happen, an oil spill, a plane crash, and you would see this, this kind of cascade, how the information would cascade through the instruments. And the, you know, and, and all of the instruments would have to kind of come back into the equilibrium, into the mathematical relationships that they were supposed to hold. And I found this very elegant and also very intriguing. And there would be these moments of chaos when things would get out of line, and that would be, you know, very exciting. And I was just really interested in this kind of information, you know, information cascades and the ways in which the ways in which things moved and that representation of them. So I did this for a while, like I said, through financial crisis, through European debt crisis. And then I just started wondering, like, this was not the career path I had chosen with any intentionality. This was just something I had fallen into through an interview that I liked and in an environment that I found stimulating. So I started thinking, okay, what do I actually want to do with my life? You know, <laughs> I'm turning 30. Oh shit, what am I going to do? And I, I decided I was going to kind of figure out what was happening in tech. Like looking back at my friends who had been in engineering classes with me and many had gone on to work in big tech or to go work at a startup. And um, I was, you know, the guy that I was dating, who's now my husband, was also at a startup. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll see what is happening in this kind of realm of innovation. But I wasn't useful as an engineer anymore. <laughs> and I, I took a job in venture capital. And so I moved out to San Francisco in 2011 to take a job in VC. And it was right around the time when sensors on smartphones had made it incredibly cheap to just, you know, to know where somebody was, to have, you know, everybody had cameras, everybody had video cameras. There was just a proliferation of Internet of Things technology, new hardware, drones were, you know, were emerging and becoming kind of a, you know, for ordinary people, you know, just having a, having a drone or a camera, geofenced coupons, you know, devices to monitor your blood flow, all these different things had been made possible by, I think Chris Anderson's term was the, the, the peace dividend of the smartphone wars was this, of this kind of proliferation of, um, of new ways to engage with a more technologically mediated world. Huh. And what was interesting about it was it was all very optimistic. A lot of like, can we, right? Can we was the question. How do we? Not so much should we, right? That would come much later. But so I was there in 2011 and this, 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 environment where, again, I felt like I had suddenly found a community that was asking really interesting questions, thinking about what could technology do to change things? What were new markets that would open up? How would we live differently? What would the future look like? And I was, I, I really loved that, still do, that aspect of, of Silicon Valley culture. I wound up having a baby in 2013. And the thing that really, more than anything else, nudged my career into this, um, the stuff that I do now was I started paying attention to anti-vaccine conversations in mommy groups on Facebook. And I started noticing ways in which recommendation engines were suggesting I follow certain types of accounts. And just the very stark difference in what was suggested to me before I had a baby versus after I had a baby. And I, you know, this was beyond things like here's some new coupons for you or here's, you know, ads for baby clothes instead of electronics, right? It was much more the communities that I was being nudged into. And I was struck by this idea, you know, behavioral economics, we paid a lot of attention to that at Jane Street, just it wasn't really relevant to the day to day, but just understanding how do, how does irrational exuberance work, right? Sure. Why do markets go haywire sometimes? And I thought here, what an interesting example of nudges moving me into new communities, new spaces, the networks that develop around these communities and spaces. And like I said, I had really enjoyed network theory when I was an undergrad also. And all of a sudden, Twitter was a place to see these things with real practical application, right? In a way that not just some like, you know, coloring graphs in a textbook, but like here was a, here was a representation of 
what this could do in the world. And I was seeing an aspect of it that I thought was actually particularly disturbing, right? Ways in which I was being nudged into communities that I didn't think were really having a positive impact on the world. And yet, you know, there was this, there was nobody nudging me into better communities, you know? (laughs) And so I thought, what an interesting dynamic this is. Like these things that are highly sensational, highly engaging, highly conspiratorial seem to be where, where I'm being, where I'm being pushed. And I just started talking to friends who, because, yeah, as I mentioned, I was in the Valley. I had, you know, I had Mm -hmm. done CS as a, um, as an undergrad. A lot of my friends were still in engineering at uh, Google and Facebook and other places. And I just started having conversations with them more about the should we aspect of the tech. Is this, yes, this is not a violation, but is this the best way for us to use this system? Is this an ethical nudge? Is this the kind of community we want to be building, what happens when we've grown, you know, we've inadvertently grown this community into something massive. What does that actually do in the real world as, you know, these people who are seeing all this anti-vaccine content seem to stop vaccinating? (laughs) What does that do to like my kid in a classroom? You know, and so it it started, it really kind of changed the tenor for me. And I became very interested in the kind of unintended consequences of network arrangements and social systems and I still had a startup. I was working, you know, I was doing a bunch of work in supply chain logistics at a company I'd helped found. I'd left venture capital. I, you know, I just wanted to, this was like my night, my night hobby and my, my, this thing that I was really captivated by. And, and then it just wound up becoming uh, my actual job. So I'm not sure that that's really actionable for, for, for many students, but there, there wasn't really a field in quite the same way. It was very kind of nascent, the, this, these conversations about internet harms kind of around this time and how we should think about those harms at scale. Got it. Super interesting path. And I, I guess as an add-on to that, you know, managing Stanford's Internet Observatory sounds about as cool as it does complex. So how do you actually describe what you do to people today? Yeah, so we we investigate the use and abuse of current information technology. I believe that's the kind of boilerplate. SIO has four main areas of work. So the first is um, trust and safety, right? How do we think about, again, unintended consequences of platform policies as they impact people very directly? Brigading, harassment, CSAM, child harm, you know, the kind of mental health questions that people have begun asking. Again, this this concept of nudges, nudging users towards eating disordered content or things like that, right? These questions about what is a, how do we think about content moderation and trust and safety issues? The second bucket is the kind of information integrity, which we used to call misdis, you know, the misinformation, disinformation mm-hmm. stuff. I don't love the limitation of those two terms because again, I think about it as it's really a problem of information cascades again, right? What is a, how do we think about the ways that networks are designed? How do we think about the ways that information moves? How do we think about systems that are designed in a, you know, to be very, very effective vectors for propaganda and rumors? And where is the balance, the trade-off between freedom of expression and the propagation of those rumors? So there's some interesting ethical questions, content moderation questions, not is this true, is this false? You know, that's, a, I think, a way too narrow attempt to scope a problem that's actually much, much bigger. And then the other two buckets are emerging tech. So again, when you have an information environment, a playing field, if you will, when there are new technologies or new platform entrants, both of those things change what is possible in the system. A new 
a new platform that says that it is largely moderation free and tries to appeal to one particular political demographic changes the way in which members of that political demographic spend their time, where they put their attention, the ways in which they engage with other users on other platforms. Do they go and become part of an echo chamber or is that like additive? Do they do that in addition to all of their other kind of online time? So there's a lot of interesting questions related to that or generative AI, large language models, make it possible for machines to produce novel forms of communication. Relatively hard to detect, actually, in the context of text. When that becomes possible, how do we think about mis- and disinformation or manipulation? Because now, all of a sudden, a machine can be tweeting, and the kind of old tells are no longer there. So interesting ways in which we think about the internet as a communication ecosystem. And when something changes one facet of the ecosystem, there are cascading effects. Now, and then the final of uh, the final kind of bucket is platform policy sorry is, is policy that can be platform policy or regulatory policy so government or 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 self-regulatory and we are interested again there in policy education and design how do we think about given empirical research into these other three areas if there is a definable harm what is the remediation for that harm or who should be in charge of watching various facets of the system or interrogating certain questions in a way that enables us to develop that empirical finding that that potentially leads to either regulatory or self-regulatory policy. So it is a, a big kind of um, big scope, but we have so many really awesome people and we have a lot of student RAs who participate. You know, we have tons of tons of students who come in and sometimes they come with a particular question they're interested in. Sometimes they want to work on a project that we have. Sometimes it's an election related project, including, you know, the Brazilian election is happening this year, U.S. elections. There's a whole range of ways to uh, to participate. And so it's, it's a really fantastic team and I love being there. Really exciting. Okay, so to, to start quite broadly, I suppose, dealing you know with themes and misinformation and disinformation online have obviously risen, in, risen sort of into the mainstream as of late. Actually, before, before we dig into that, why don't we just briefly define some terms? Because we tend to throw stuff like this sure. around, right? So what's, what's the difference between misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda? Yeah, so misinformation generally refers to something that is inadvertently wrong. It's usually false, sometimes misleading, but often falsifiable. And the people who are spreading it are generally doing it because they sincerely believe it. There's a often an altruistic motivation. I want to help my community know the truth about this thing. And so that is one, you know, that that's where misinformation falls. Disinformation when we use it um, at SIO and, and I think that's most careful, clearly scoped terminology refers to a deliberate campaign uh, to make people believe something. So it actually ties in very closely to propaganda in the context of what is formerly or what has historically been known as black propaganda. This There's a spectrum, the, the monochromatic spectrum, white, gray, black, and historical research into propaganda, historical descriptions, uh, describes white propaganda as that which is attributable. You know that the state, for example, is putting it out or a particular agency or entity is putting it out because even though the message may be inflected in a certain way, the attribution is clear and transparent. A gray propaganda, you start to see things like front media properties, which are secretly funded. You wouldn't necessarily know that. Or there's some strong ties to a person in a government administration, and there's a perception that that might 
might be linked, but you don't quite know for sure. So that's where that gray stuff falls. And then the black propaganda refers to active misattribution, active attempts to manipulate the audience by not being clear on who is putting out the message or by lying in the message. And that's where the the kind of intersection with propaganda and dis- comes in the form of this uh, disinformation campaigns are often kind of linked through that, um, that, that black propaganda, that, that material that is put out without a obvious, you know, with an, an act of misattribution, a pretense that someone else is saying something. So disinformation, we tend to think of as a, as a campaign, not necessarily one claim, but a very coordinated effort to make people think or believe um, a particular thing. Got it. And propaganda in the easiest definition of the term is sort of information with an agenda uh, that tries to make the audience either believe something or take an action that fulfills the objectives of the propagandist. So there's an element of some sort of um, desire to either activate or persuade or make a community of people take an action that benefits the the person who's controlling the messaging. Got it. So you know now, now in an attempt to sort of really distill what we're getting at here with these larger themes in mind and this obvious but sort of you know gradual blurring between what parts of our lives are online and what parts are offline so to speak what do you see as the biggest problems most broadly that the internet is facing today like is it context collapse and echo chambers in online spaces is it like a larger loss of faith in institutions is it opaque algorithms like do you even approach it like that like are there well defined issues in the first place or is everything a bit too interconnected to to think there's like a that? lot of interconnectedness this is where i think there are certain things that are questions related to communication technology, right? Where we can treat the in- the internet as a um, as a new communication medium, the same way that we could use media theory and scholarship drawn from other media environments, like the rise of television. There's a lot of really excellent books written in the 1960s about propaganda in the age of of you know this kind of information shift. Um, one of the things that is novel about the internet though is the participatory nature and that is really fundamentally different so in prior media environments most of the conversation about disinformation uh, or propaganda were related to a very top-down control of information in which the government and the media were you know the access to the means of broadcast the means of message dissemination was quite limited There were, you know, you had to have access to television or radio or, you know, a printing press. You could reach perhaps small communities of people, but not have the reach of mass media. There was a very different, um, you know, different degree of agency that an ordinary person had in those environments. Sure. But the internet changed that, right? So first, everybody got the ability to create content. This happened in Web 1, right? The blogosphere. Anybody could create a GeoCities page. I had one when I was, you know, in like sixth grade or something like that anybody could write whatever the hell they wanted it didn't matter if it was true or false it was all irrelevant it was just a way to you know the maximization of expression what social networks did was they then brought all the people together and connected them onto one platform and this solved in a sense the problem of distribution so now all of a sudden you could you know whereas maybe a handful of people could become popular during the age of blogs in the age of social media, you could have very targeted niche communities where you could produce content for people interested in yoga with two kids, you know, <laughs> and you right, could have right, this really, right. these very, very niche audiences, but it was very cheap to create content. It, you, everybody had at this point also the, another facet of it was the, the kind of phone dynamics I was talking about. You have now all of a sudden a video camera 
in your pocket everywhere you go, right? So the kind of content you can put out changes. Each of us has the ability to share and like content, which influences an algorithm, which is curating and recommending content and ranking feeds. So we, through each of our small actions, are influencing a much bigger system. And so I describe it sometimes as uh, algorithms, affordances, and agency, right? You have the affordances, the tools that people are given in the system, the algorithms in this particular system that act as they see users using those tools. So I think it's the concept of like a, a mutually shaping system. The user does something, uses a tool or a feature that they're given, the algorithm keys off of that signal, provides them with more of what they want theoretically while developing kind of a picture of who they are, sort of profile of who they are. Of course, there's a business model component to this, you know, the platforms are making money off of that. But in addition, there is this interesting flywheel effect where content that gets engagement gets more engagement. Influencers that right, have some influence right. gain more influence. And so there's the dynamics of what kind of substance or output is most likely to occur given the structures, given the network shape, given the affordance capabilities. Those two things are linked. And so the relationship between what a structure or you know the the sort of structure of the internet ecosystem produces i think is really one of the things that is transformative there are crises of trust there are crises of legitimacy in institutions but even there what you see on social platforms because of this participatory dynamic is that anytime an institution fails in a visible way it's it's not something that just kind of like happens off in some corner where only a few people see it if media decides to cover it. No, it's that it becomes so much a part of the conversation. And so I think there is this effect that's happening where people are constantly seeing um, their political leaders make mistakes, say something wrong, and then that becomes something that, you know, that, ha that then dominates a small news cycle for a certain segment of the population for a period of time. And we're just hopping from these outrage cycles to outrage cycles, which I think does have the effect of engendering cynicism, making people believe that all institutions are incompetent, all political leaders are craven, because we see these sort of high profile instances multiple times a week. And I, and that's where I think this link between the technological and the and the social impact is something that's just it it manifests very differently today I think than it did in in prior media environments. And there's some trade-offs there. Putting it cyclically like that is really interesting. I've never thought of it in that way. The next question I've got for you is, is you know there's been a lot of talk recently about Elon Musk's potential, I think, ish acquisition of Twitter mm -hmm. and uh, what some larger proposals being thrown around might imply. So to break this down for a second before, you know, before anything else, what, what are your thoughts on algorithmic transparency, you know, open sourcing a platform like Twitter's algorithm? And is it as great a solution as people imply? Like, I can't imagine there's literally a line of code in there saying, oh, you know, suppress content from accounts that, you know, are like from Ohio or whatever. Like, as far as I can imagine, these are pretty complex machines with tools for testing the, the resultant output of, of a post under certain conditions. Am I missing the mark here at all? What do you think? No, I don't think you are. So I would say, first, I'm a huge advocate for transparency. And I think that there are on the regulatory front, meaning actual government regulation of social platforms, the thing that I think is absolutely foundational is legislation like Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. Full disclosure, a colleague of mine at Stanford kind of wrote the first draft of that. But just speaking as Renee, I think it's um, just 
hugely important because what it does is it says there are questions that we can't answer right now as outsiders. Interestingly, you're seeing this play out in the Elon conversation in the context of this, like what percentage of bots are on Twitter? Right. You know, is it 5%, 20%? He threw around 90%. I think I saw a little bit earlier today, you know, <laughs> depending on, on what you see, you know, your perception of how many bots are on Twitter and how much they matter is really very influenced by your own experience of the platform. And I remember when Elon first put out this um, proposal, to this idea that he was going to buy Twitter, you know, he talked about four things. I think it was maximize free speech, you know, kind of make the platforms realize their their potential as the public square, um, open source the algorithm, which I'll, I'll address in a second. And then the other two things were get rid of the bots, like like stop the spam, and then oh, authenticate all the humans was the fourth one. And there's some interesting things there because in, in some ways those are actually contradictory. <laughs> you know, you can there's a lot of arguments that automated accounts are still, you know, kind of still fall under the rubric of speech because they are the, you know, kind of um, one degree removed, but speaking on behalf of the people who created them. Now, this is a debatable point, I think, but it is, uh, you know, it is a point that I believe uh, courts have have found in favor of. But what's interesting is if you're Elon Musk and people are constantly impersonating you and a, a, you know, kind of spam accounts are constantly drafting in your replies, trying to manipulate people into cryptocurrency scams, then you probably have a very different perspective of what's, what bots and spam are like on Twitter uh, versus someone like me where I see, you know, I see a handful and there's a couple of likes, you know, what look like automated accounts or things where, you know, you say a word and then immediately the reply hits and like right, that's quite right. obviously automated. But I don't, I don't see it as a, a massive problem. It is not for me. So there's this perception of my corner of the internet is like this. So the entire internet is like this. And that's not a, you know, that's not a particularly um, supportable point, but we don't have data access to do this kind of work arguments that platforms are biased against conservatives. We don't have access to really do that work. It's, you know, and, and it's, I think as we see these platforms as being so profoundly important in our daily lives, there's a strong argument to be made for having researcher or civil society access to better interrogate, you know, what the structure is actually, is actually producing. On the subject, though, of can you just open source the Twitter algorithm? Like, I can't get my head around what that means. So, <laughs> <laughs> per your point, I don't know. I mean, like, absent, you know, training data, and you know, I can't get my head around like what they're going to put out. I was really intrigued by the public response. You know, I saw some conservative pundits say, like, now we're going to see how badly they've been shadow banning us. And I was yeah. like, what do you think this yeah. is going to look like? Like, what a remarkable idea that you're just gonna like create a github account and go look and like find the like if conservative that then shadow ban like line is you know is just ludicrous but but i think that this you know the the algorithm is it's a i'm doing that in air quotes i'm realizing now no one can actually see me but yeah. <laughs> the algorithm in air quotes it doesn't actually it's it doesn't really mean anything and so are we talking about the recommendation algorithms? Are we talking about the feed ranking, the curation? You know, that that feed ranking question is a very complicated one. Elon has been tweeting about switching into reverse chronological feed. And he says, you know, go look at reverse chronological versus curated, the, the ranked feed and see, you know, I think he said like how they've been manipulating you. And manipulating is a very interesting term to use there because many people who have talked about the problems with algorithmic curation and feed ranking, including myself, talk about it in the context of 
the user doesn't realize how much is designed to kind of grab their attention and hook them in and make them outraged or make them participate in a you know highly engaged, often inflammatory conversation. But the use of the word manipulated in that context felt like there was almost uh, an argument that like the Twitter algorithm itself was somehow deliberately manipulative, you know, in, in a in a way that is sort of surprising to see stated by someone who's ostensibly interested in buying the company. Right. So I, I don't know where they're going to go with this open sourcing thing. I do think teaching ordinary people how a collaborative filtering works, you know, just the basics, like here's collaborative filtering 101. Here's, you know, here's why this platform thinks you should be in this group, or here is here are the different facets that go into a feed waiting, you know, maybe something like much more conceptual and high level versus open sourcing the algorithm. Gotcha. As a bit of an add on to that, like, what is this idea of social media platforms existing as protocols, right? As public infrastructure or carriers rather than siloed services entail? Like, is this something you think is an inevitability? Because you, you talk a lot about, you know, being a proponent of transparency, is that something you'd see as like a net benefit? Like, is it right for, you know, centralized entities to control the curation of information in the first place? It's an interesting question. There are trade-offs here too. I think this, you know, this is a very complicated problem of trade-offs all the way down, right? So the protocols, not platforms. I think Mike Masnick has done some really good writing on this at TechDirt. There are real arguments to be made. And I think I've seen, you know, Twitter's doing this with Blue Sky. And I'm trying to think, my colleague at Stanford, Frank Fukuyama, put out a proposal arguing in favor of middleware, right? Mm. Giving users control over that feed. There was a project out of MIT called Gobo. I was at Ethan Zuckerman's um, when he was over at, at, at MIT. And I remember I created an account and I thought it was really interesting. I could set my feed to show me more posts from women, more pictures, more, you know, there are a bunch of different ways uh, in which you could kind of adjust the sliders to see more of what you might not otherwise see to, to kind of have some some control over your feed. And I think that, again, this question of giving users agency, at a, at a minimum, it makes people feel more empowered. It makes them feel like they have more of an understanding of what's going into their feed. You know, it's a little more comprehensible. Does it solve all of the problems of the internet? No. You know, you are going to see, I think, the potential for people to be in their silo, you know, to retreat much more heavily into, you know, kind of safer feeling or friendlier feeling community. That's, you know, maybe one of the other kind of downsides, but it, you know, it removes some of the problems, the concerns about censorship, the concerns about platform serving as arbiters of truth or as arbiters of what you should see. On the flip side, you know, again, I think this question of, does it just nudge us further and further into uh, wholly separate communities as opposed to bringing people together, you know, which is what ostensibly a public square is for. Gotcha. Speaking more broadly about the implications of larger decisions like that here, I've, I've heard you talk about public health messaging and discourse during COVID as sort of evidence of what a trade-off information curation can actually be, right? Like in Google's case, you you have this case of, of their policy of again, air quotes here, minimizing harm when presenting you with search results, giving you what they, you know, sort of deem to be more accurate information instead of what might be like most popular in instances of, I don't know, looking up advice or, or like treatment for illnesses, for example. And you see it in social media feeds too, right? Like what actually gets curated for you? Like, like 
Is it what has the most likes? Is it what, or who has the most expertise or credentials? Like, what does that trade-off look like for you? Yeah, it's really complicated. Um, so Google search in particular, back in around 2012, um, I think it was 2012, came up with a policy and they call it your money or your life, right? Mm. And it argues that your money or your life says that there are certain types of searches where the platform has a higher standard of care, where there's an obligation um, to ensure that you have the most accurate information possibly possible because there is a quite articulatable harm to you if it gives you nonsense. So if you are looking to open a bank account and it gives you some, you know, fake spammy, like, you know, spear phishing company's website and you go and you upload your ID and your, you know, <laughs> and your SSN and you sign up for an account and then it turns out it's garbage. Well, you know, you've potentially just experienced a very significant loss there. Similarly, if you have a cancer diagnosis and you come home and you search the name of your illness and you find juice fasts, mm. you know, and, and all kinds of nonsense that is not, not in keeping with the standard of modern medicine, are you entitled to find alternative medicine? Yes. Should it be on the first page of Google search results? There's a strong argument that the answer to that is no. Uh, one that that I personally feel pretty strongly is, is in fact, a very legitimate, reasonable way for, for, for a platform to be thinking about how it curates information. What was interesting about your money or your life is that Google didn't apply it to YouTube for a very, very long time hmm. because YouTube was like a place that you went to be entertained. And so it speaks to the idea that our, our engagement with social media platforms Originally, it was to find your friends and follow baby pictures and see parties and like the night out, you know, what, what did everybody do kind of stuff. And then gradually it became a place that people went for information. And as that shift happened, you started to see this interesting phenomenon where influencers who were just very, very good at communicating were very authentic. They didn't necessarily have a lot of expertise, but they were very good at communicating. And so influencers kind of were better at communicating in this new environment than institutions where knowledge had typically, you know, or an idea of authority had typically resided. This, of course, combines with what we were talking about earlier, where sometimes the institution is wrong, right? And where is that intermediary consensus-making process when information is flying along? It's not presented on the nightly news. It's coming, you know, people are searching for information and random things are coming out every minute of the day. Any influencer with a million followers who normally talks about guitars can start talking about COVID. And there's, you know, cons to that. And so for platform curation, the question becomes, what do you surface and what are the potential harms associated with it? I do think that for the other part of our conversation about transparency, I do think that research into understanding how information is received and how can we quantify these harms in some way? Can we connect them to, to perhaps offline impact? You know, we know that anti-vaccine messages increased. We know that they increased in certain communities. We can see comments in the groups from people who make personal decisions for their children that occasionally have really, truly tragic outcomes. You know, there are people who lose children who are in these groups. They right. take bad advice and their children suffer. Um, can you connect that to a broader societal trend? That's where there's a little bit more of a gap. But this question of when somebody goes and searches for vaccine information, what should they see? Should they see the most popular post on the platform, which is a gameable metric, or should they see something that has some kind of rooting and authority? In fact, uh, because there is a potential for very real harm, I personally think it should be the latter. There are other people who completely disagree. 
you know, and that's, but that's the, that's the kind of the nature of the tension. How do we think about, do you give everybody the option to make that determination themselves with middleware where they can slide up, you know, influencers and slide down institutions and media, you know, maybe that's how people want to live. Um, I think that's, that's one of the, the kind of information design questions that faces us today. Super interesting. So to start winding us down here in a sort of similar vein, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on online identity and where that's heading. You know, people tend to point back to the early days of the internet, as you did earlier, as this largely like pseudonymous, you know, you know, existing on top of open protocols that people were free to use. Then we have the rise of a lot of today's social and tech giants, you know, Facebook and more notably in this context that acted as a sort of great unmasking, I think I've heard it be called as, prompting people to use real names when they're sort of interacting with each other online. Now we're in this interesting time period where, in my mind, we're becoming more vulnerable using our likenesses and real identities online as, you know, more and more of our sensitive or identifying information is out there either, you know, just via quick Google search or maybe made available through some kind of data breach, right? So what I'm really trying to ask, I think here is what do you think the future of identity online looks like? Like, do we keep this quote unquote web two attitude of using our real names or is that, has there been sort of a fundamental shift in the way that we present ourselves online under one or more identities, either pseudonymously or anonymously? You know, I remember a very long time ago, like 2011, there was an interesting, the creator of 4chan, Chris Poole, goes by Moot, was at a conference I was at, and he, he said something that has stuck with me, which was, it's not who you share with, it's who you share as. And he was arguing for the value of anonymity, and this was around a time when, you know, kind of Facebook and true names seemed to be the direction that things were going, years before the extent to which quote unquote, true name could be manipulated as it was by a number of state actors and other entities and created fake people on the platform, kind of exposed the flaws in this idea that true name was, you know, was, was manageable. But I, it was that, that question of who you share as, you know, what kinds of information do you put out there in your professional capacity versus in your personal capacity? Um, I think one of the reasons why people find the experience of having one facet of their lives brought into another social platform so jarring and so frightening actually a lot of the time is because there's a perception of these separate spheres where I am one person over here and another person over here and internet really has the potential to 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 flatten that very quickly there's a i talked to you know to a number of people about this particular topic a lot of you know, there's a real value in anonymity, particularly outside of the U.S., particularly in authoritarian countries or where you really need dissidents to be able to feel that they can express themselves and use these tools to call attention to challenges. Um, I do think there is something at the same time very interesting that's happening with emerging tech like generative text AI, where you are very soon not really going to know if you're engaging with a human or not, right? That, that technology is going to become increasingly more sophisticated. And so this idea of like, Proof of person is something mm. that's been intriguing me lately. What what does it mean to have a a verified identity? Not who you are specifically, but that you are real, that you exist. And this notion, I think about Reddit a lot in the context of persistent pseudonymity, right? So there is a you can use a pseudonym, but you're there's kind of like a ranking. You know, it tells people like you have this much, you know, karma, you have these many points. So there's a, a quick indicator that you're not some asshole who just popped into the forum to create problems. Yeah, you have a pseudonym, but you know, look, you've existed and you've created value and you've participated in communities in a constructive way. And that 
that question, is there a way to take that persistent pseudonymity almost and, and create a identity layer for the internet that doesn't require necessarily true name or that has differentiation in your, you know, your, the various facets of your life or, or where you choose to be online, but also at the same time has this proof of person component to it. I, I do think that that's one of the more interesting questions of how we're going to reckon with this over the next five or six years. I hear people say like Web3 solves this, but I can't get my head around how. So <laughs> should have another guest on and ask them about that. Definitely. So, you know, last one as a last, but I guess much more open question I've started enjoying asking people. What do you think more people should be paying attention to? Well, that's a great question. Hmm. I feel like I'm always so immersed in like my work. And I actually ask myself, what should I be paying more attention to? I have really been... I've been following education policy quite a lot. I feel like that's actually quite foundational. A lot of the questions around what does it mean to be educated? I have three little kids, uh, eight, five, and 18 months. And being, you know, being thrust inadvertently into homeschooling during the pandemic really made me pay attention quite a lot to the politics of education, the dynamics of education, the way that we encode our values and what we educate. And I, you know, I, didn't pay quite so much attention to that until much more recently. The cost of an education, the value of a trade school, perhaps, the question of, you know, math curriculums, all of these things are foundational, you know, and, and have pretty profound impact for the next generation. And, you know, and so that's, I think I would say, for me, it's, I've been really struck by the dynamics around education. Got it. Renee, this has been great. Thank you so much for the time. I hope we can keep in touch and I'll shoot you this. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, done. let me know. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Bye.